Our gracious Heavenly Father, my prayer this morning is a simple one, that Lord, uh, despite my failings and my weaknesses and my sinfulness, that Lord, you would be pleased to use the words that I would speak to encourage us, to challenge us, to rebuke us and to correct us. And Father, this morning, do what we cannot do by the power of your Spirit is to open our eyes and our hearts to see your Son, our Lord Jesus, more clearly and to love him with a deeper love and to honour your word more and more in every aspect of our lives. Humble us who are happy in our self-righteousness and all those of us who are suffering and struggling, that, Lord, your word would bring comfort to us this morning. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just if you look at that little section entitled The Temple Tax from verse 24 onwards in Matthew chapter 17, I'm sure on first reading from a human perspective you would have thought, how could you believe that? Honestly. It's hard enough to catch fish, let alone to catch a fish with a gold coin or a a silver coin in its mouth. On one level it's truly amazing. It is truly miraculous. Many would say this is the greatest miracle Jesus performed in his earthly ministry. But even on one level, even very godly, mature Christian men state that this is nothing short of an embarrassing miracle. It's embarrassing. It's hard to believe. On on a human level, it is so far-fetched that just from a human perspective, it, it can't happen in real life. And I'm sure it's in this historical setting, this cultural setting, that this story comes to to those that were with Jesus at the time. We're told in verse 24 that the collectors of the two drachma coin came to Peter. There were skeptics in the crowd, I'm sure. There were those, there were probably Pharisees, there were probably the teachers of the law who were hanging around in the background thinking, we're going to stump this guy. He hasn't paid the tax, let's see. He's said in the past... Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. But he hasn't paid the tax. Is he a dodger? Is he a tax cheat? Or is he just a man of words? M.L. Brunner, who's a great Christian theologian uh, of some time back, stated that this is the most embarrassing story in the whole of Scripture. It's an embarrassing miracle. But what can we make of it? I think this little section that comes to us from verse 24 to 27 hinges around two things, two very important questions that are asked. First, the question is asked to Peter by the collectors of the temple tax and secondly, it's a question asked by Peter's master, the Lord Jesus himself. Let's look at the first question. The first question, as we've already mentioned, is addressed to Peter in verse 24. And it's a simple question. Is your master, is your teacher Jesus a tax cheat? After Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax came to Peter and asked, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Now just a bit of background from what I have read. This was a temple tax. You know, the Roman Empire was in in power at the time, controlling... Jerusalem and uh, and all of those areas, but this was not a tax that was levied by Caesar. It wasn't a civil tax. It wasn't even a, a Roman government tax. It was simply a tax that was levied by the Jewish authorities, and it was levied on all Jewish men once they had attained the age of twenty years old. 
And as I understand it from many of the commentators, it was a once-off payment. As soon as you turned 20, you didn't have to pay the tax. But at some point in your life, once you attained the age of 20, you needed to pay this tax at least once. Now Jesus, we know from this point, was at least 30 years old. We don't know how old Peter was, but it was evident from the story that neither him nor Peter had paid the tax up until this point. And this tax, I understand, was used exclusively for the upkeep of the Jewish temple. And it probably had been collected, as many commentators said, for centuries and centuries from the Old Testament. It gives us probably some insight into the time of Josiah, remember, the great king who brought reform to the Jewish nation when he rebuilt the temple. He had so much resources, wealthy resources at his hands and he used them to rebuild the the temple of God in Jerusalem. And so Peter is asked a very good question. Is your teacher going to pay the temple tax? Now the temple tax, as we're told, consisted of the payment of a two drachma per head per male who had just turned 20 years old. And if you know your Bible well, you'll know that this was a substantial amount of money. Two drachmas represented something of about the equivalent of two days' wages. But the problem that they had was in this time there was no two drachma coin. So you couldn't go and get a two drachma coin and pay for yourself. What you had to do is you had to join with another fellow Jew, male Jew who had turned the age of 20 who hadn't paid the tax and you had to join together and pay because there was only a four drachma coin. It was a substantial tax and it was a symbolic tax because first of all, by paying this tax you showed first and foremost that you were Jewish. In a Roman world, you stood up and you said, I am a Jew. Second of all, it showed your solidarity not only with being Jewish but with God, Yahweh, the God of heaven and earth. It also showed your solidarity, your connection not only with being Jewish not only with God, the Yahweh, the God of the, the universe, but you also showed your solidarity with the temple. And that was a sticking point for the Romans. And so these people come to Peter and they ask, does your teacher pay the tax? Now why should have there been any doubt as to whether Jesus paid the temple tax or not? But it's a good question. Because only a little earlier, in Matthew chapter 12, we're told, Jesus stated quite categorically, if you remember, and I'm sure the the Pharisees and the tax collectors and all these critics that were in the crowd at the time uh, were there and many of them were hanging on every word of Jesus. They would have recalled only a few chapters earlier, maybe a couple of days earlier, that Jesus had stated earlier, and Matthew records it in chapter 12, that Jesus said quite categorically that there is one who is here who is greater than the temple. Now if this teacher, these these critics would have said, is saying that he is greater than the temple, or that one who has come is greater than this magnificent looking Jewish temple, and Jesus is saying it is him, it is he himself, then we want to know, does he still pay for the upkeep of the temple? Now notice what loyal Peter says in response to the question. In verse 25, of course he does. Yes, he does, Peter replied. Jesus is no tax cheat. 
even if it is only a church-based tax. Now notice the second question that also comes to Peter in verse 25, but this time it is not questioned or given to him by the sceptics, but it's asked of him by none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. In verse 25, when Peter responds, he said, Yes, he does, he replied. When Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. What do you think, Simon? He asked. From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own sons or from others? Jesus is really asking Peter a very simple question. He says, when the king of a nation levies a tax, does his own son, the prince, have to pay it? Probably in modern day language, it's the question, do, do Prince William and Prince Harry pay taxes to the British government, to their queen, the, their mother, their grandmother, the queen? I'm not sure if they do now, maybe they've changed the law, but historically and traditionally they didn't pay it. Princes don't pay taxes to their, to, to their own family. They're exempt. They're the sons of the, of the royal queen and king of, of the country. They don't pay it. And Peter responds quite honestly to Jesus. He says, no, of course the sons don't pay. The, the tax is levied and paid from others, Peter answered. And then Jesus responds, not only, not only from others. So the princes, the royal sons, do not pay tax. Now let's understand that this is the crux of this miracle. The key to this miracle comes in verse 26 at the end where Jesus responds. This is the principle that we need to understand. When Peter says from others, Jesus then replies, and this is the crux of the, 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 the message, then the sons are exempt, Jesus said to him. Just as princes don't pay tax for the upkeep of the royal household, so Jesus doesn't have to pay the temple tax to his father, who is the Lord of the temple, which is the symbol of the royal house. My father, Jesus is saying to these people and to Peter, is the Lord of the temple and he claims no tax from me. I am exempt. And friends, that is the fantastic thing about this great miracle. Because whilst it appears so basic, it becomes so profound, so fantastic in its simplicity. And we ask the question, why? Why is it so fantastic? Why is it so profound? Well, I think it is nothing short of Jesus here in a very, very subtle but very clever way. He's making a claim to deity. Jesus is saying that he is the son of the Lord of the temple. And God the Father does not exact payment from him because ultimately Jesus himself is the true temple. Jesus is the true temple between God and man. He is the meeting place between God and people. And so comes this great principle for us in verse 26. The sons are exempt. This is profound, friends. Our Lord Jesus, in the most subtle but in the most cleverest way, is claiming to be nothing short of God. And it is true. That is exactly who he is. But notice what happens next in verse 27. But so that we may not offend them, go to the lake and throw out your line. Take the first fish you catch, open its mouth 
and you will find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. So that the, the non, lest the non-payment of this tax be interpreted by the collectors of the coins and all those skeptics that were in the crowd at that time, be interpreted by them as a lack of solidarity by Jesus with God his Father, with the Jewish nation, with the temple and with the law of Moses. Lest Jesus causes a scandal or so that he doesn't offend people unnecessarily, he goes to his disciple Peter and he says, go and catch a fish. And it's very interesting. If you read the New Testament, I think from my personal reading, but it's not extensive, it's the first, just an interesting point, it's the first and only place in the New Testament where we're told that one of the disciples goes to catch a fish, not with a net, but with a line. Just an interesting sight. They're always told in other parts of the scripture to go and cast your net. But here Jesus tells uh, Peter to go and cast out your line. And so Jesus tells Peter, go take the fish, take the first fish, fish you catch, open its mouth, and you will find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and for yours. What can we make of this miracle? Well, first it tells us something about God, doesn't it? tells us something about the Lord Jesus himself and about his character. You see, whether you view this miracle as extraordinary or fantastic as I do or not, it clearly teaches us that God is the great provider. The Lord Jesus Christ has, is, is the sovereign Lord. He controls the fish of the sea, the birds of the air. He controls the lives of you and me. So simple, just by a word, he says to Peter, go and catch a fish and by the way, when you first, the first fish you catch, pick it up, open its mouth and you'll find a coin in there. Amazing. Miraculous. Only God can do that. As far as I'm concerned, only God can catch a fish. I can't even catch a fish. But here he is, he catches a fish. The first fish he catches has a coin in its mouth. Perfect provision for the temple tax for both Peter and for Jesus. Quite incredible. The Lord Jesus as God himself provides for what the temple tax demands. He didn't remember, he didn't have to pay it. He was the son of God. He is the temple himself, the true temple. He is the son of the Lord of the temple. He doesn't have to pay the tax. But he does. And of course, as the great provider, only a few chapters later in Matthew we were told we show and we witness God's greatest provision in providing what the law of Moses demanded. Not tax, but life. A perfect life given in sacrifice. A few chapters on, after this miracle, God provides his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of his people. Incredible. But notice also here, we're not only taught that God is the great provider, he is also the great affirmer. Because Jesus, as I've already said, is making an enormous claim, a claim of deity. He is the son of the Lord of the temple. And God, by providing that fish, just as Jesus said it was going to happen, affirms the character and the person of his son, the Lord Jesus. 
Jesus here is making a claim. It is an extraordinary claim. He is making a claim that he is in relationship with the royal household. His father is the lord of the temple. That one greater than the temple is here. And remember in chapter 16 of Matthew, Peter has already confessed that he believes Jesus to be the Son of God, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And I'm sure when Peter, as doubtful as he may have been, when he pulled up his line and caught that fish and opened its mouth to find the four drachma coin, it would have been overwhelming evidence to him that this Jesus, whom he claimed to be the Christ, was indeed the Son of God. That this Jesus is the Son of the Lord of the Temple. That this Jesus is in some way unique to God Yahweh. One other thing is very interesting about this miracle, which is just an aside, is this miracle is only recorded for us by Matthew. It's not recorded in any of the other Gospels. And that's interesting. My only take on it is because it requires, it, it talks about tax. Matthew was a tax collector. And so, of course, if you're interested in money, Matthew will be the man who records it. But it's an interesting point. But more importantly, Matthew, who is a Jew himself, is writing here to a predominantly Jewish audience. And he wants them to be clear. He wants to make it clear that this Jesus who Peter has declared to be the Christ, is the one who stands in unique relationship with the Lord of the temple, the Jewish temple which they found to be the centre of their universe. He is the unique son. He is the Lord of the temple himself. What I find interesting is all these, if you read the Gospels, they just seem to be in unconnected sort of stories and miracles and things but if you read them in context I find it quite remarkable I just want us to look just at the context which surrounds this miracle look at the beginning just turn one page uh, earlier the beginning of chapter 17 uh, entitled the transfiguration in verse 5 we're told uh, this is the transfiguration the, the, the disciples that were there Peter, James and John just for a short moment they get a glimpse a short glimpse of Jesus' glory. And notice what we have here after this. We have a direct word from God here. We got one at Jesus' baptism and now we get one here in the transfiguration in verse 5. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them and a voice from the cloud saying, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. This is a magnificent chapter in the way it begins. Let's have a look at the immediate context now. Let's just turn over again, just the next page where we were looking, verses 22 and 23, just before this miracle. They came together in Galilee. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life, and the disciples were filled with grief. Because this Son, God's unique Son, is one with whom we are to listen to. Here we are, we are told he is the Lord of all creation. He is the Lord over the fish of the, the sea, the birds of the air. But in humility, he does not wish to cause offence. Yet he is Lord. In humility, he is concerned with not causing offence. 
What you see in the transfiguration and in the death of Jesus is two, humanly speaking, contrasting things, but they come so beautifully together. In the transfiguration you see nothing but the glory and the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. But yet in this miracle you see humility. He lowers himself. He doesn't stand on his right as the Son of God not to pay the temple tax. He didn't have to. He is the God of the universe. He is the the divine majesty. He could have just said, get away with me. Just stop asking these stupid questions. But he doesn't. In his majesty, at the same time in this miracle, we see his great humility. He lowers himself. He humbles himself. The sons are exempt, but lest he cause offence, he goes and tells Peter to pay the temple tax. And of course, our Lord Jesus, in saying that the sons are exempt, but lest he offends, is foreshadowing what he is to do on the cross, which we see in verses 22 and 23. The son is free, but he limits his freedom to serve a larger purpose. The son is free not to pay the tax, but he pays it nevertheless. The son himself is free from sin, but yet death and death has no hold on him. But in humility he dies on the cross. He submits and limits his freedom for the sake of the salvation of those who are lost, like you and me. He is God's temple, but he pays the temple tax lest he cause offence. Honestly, I think this is a marvellous, important miracle because it shows without any doubt that Jesus is nothing short of divine. He himself makes a self-claim that he is an intimate and an integral part of the divine family. He forms part of the Trinity. And here in verse 27, Jesus is showing great sensitivity. Jesus is giving us a model of responsible exercise of of Christian freedom. He is God himself. He does not need to pay the tax. He He has every right to stand on his authority and to refuse to pay the tax. He has every right to demand respect and submission from those skeptics around him. He has proven beyond doubt who he is. But yet here in this great miracle he shows the divine heart for humanity. Jesus in not paying the tax is showing his great desire to see humanity come to salvation. You see he, was, he had every right to stand and to cause offence and to, to offend those people that were in the crowd asking, do you, does your teacher pay the tax? He had every right to do that. But in humility, he understood what was more important than standing on his own rights. Jesus, more than we could even understand, shows a heart for those he came to save. He didn't want to cause offence. He could have. He could have made the point by not paying the tax, but lest he cause offence, he had the greatest desire to see these people that were around him come into the kingdom of God. He wanted to see them saved, and so he pays the tax. And we can learn from him. Friends, we can stand on our rights. We can demand respect from our peers and others in our community because we, if we are children of God, we are free. We are free indeed. The Son has set us free. 
Jesus is free to pay the tax, but he pays it. We are free too. But we are to curb our freedom for the sake of the greater good. Just like our Lord Jesus, we are to use our freedom to reach the hearts of those in our community. For Jesus himself, the Son of God, he wished not to cause offence unnecessarily. He wanted to win these people for the kingdom. And so he goes and tells Peter to go and to pay the tax. You see, the Lord Jesus always had his eye on the bigger picture. Not offending people because he didn't pay some insignificant temple tax. But actually he wanted to see people come into the kingdom of God. And the Apostle Paul was like that too, remember. In 1 Corinthians, in the issue of Christian freedom, in eating meat that was sacrificed to idols, Paul says you're free to do anything. You're free to eat it or you're free not to eat it. You do, you choose. You do whatever you want. But for Paul, even though he was free, he had the bigger picture in view. Instead of standing on his right and his, of his right of freedom, he knew what was more important was the godliness of his brothers and sisters in Christ. And so Paul, like Jesus, asked himself the question, what is the best for the spiritual well-being of others? For Paul, the question was always, what is best for the gospel? I'll sacrifice my freedom so that another can be built up or even come into the kingdom of God. You see, this is, an, a, a, this is a very good point to make and we need to understand this about freedom. A truly free person, if you know Christ, you are truly free. If you are truly free, you are not bound by your freedom. You see, he doesn't, you don't have to act consistently with your freedom and that's the whole miraculous thing about freedom, the whole issue of freedom. Jesus was free to pay the tax or not to pay the tax. That's what true freedom is about. He's free, Paul was free to eat the meat sacrificed to idols or not to eat the meat that was sacrificed to idols. That's what freedom's all about. And therefore he doesn't always have to act consistently with the way we think people have to exercise their freedom. Now the question begs, doesn't it, when you talk about freedom, when we look at the Lord Jesus here in Matthew chapter 17, because he goes, and lest he causes his offence and tells Peter to pay the tax, was he compromising his faith? Was he ready to compromise everything as so not to cause offence? Well, we need only to turn, on, turn over a couple of pages to chapter 21, don't we, to remember the story where the Lord Jesus causes enormous offence when he turns, overturns the tables and expels the traders from his father's house, from the very temple itself that he was took paying tax to. Why wasn't Jesus sensitive there? Because what was being compromised was the integrity of God himself. And the Lord Jesus, first and foremost, will never compromise the integrity of his father. Never. And that's why Paul, remember, in the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15, fought hard. Remember, they were, they were the Jews, the, these, you know, what do they call them, the Judaizers, who were insisting that not only do you need to put your faith in Christ, but you needed to be circumcised to show that you were Jewish, to be saved. Paul says, ah, no way. He was willing to die for the issue. He said, no, circumcision has no place in the integrity of the gospel. But what's very interesting is in Acts chapter 15, Paul is ready to die for the sake of the gospel by fighting against circumcision. And then in Acts chapter 16, what does he do? He tells his, his, his spiritual son Timothy, go and get the chop, 
<laughs> it's very interesting, isn't it? Would you say, well, some people say, oh, he's being a hypocrite. But he didn't, because Paul always had his eye on the big picture. Because he knew that such action for Timothy would be advantageous for the broadcast of the gospel amongst the Greeks and the Jews. Friends, the question begs of us all this morning, do we exercise our Christian freedom responsibly in love? Martin Luther, that great reformer, said about freedom, a Christian is the most free person of all, subject to none. But a Christian is the most dutiful servant of all, subject to everyone. We reign over all in order to serve Christ and to serve the Christ in others. Now friends, you can take this principle of freedom and apply it to every single aspect of Christian life. I can't tell you how to apply it. You need to apply this principle of freedom with great wisdom and sensitivity. But there is one aspect in my life that I, that I struggle with all the time and it's the time when we come to Easter. You know, the Good Friday, my mother and father pro- proclaimed to be Christians but my mother who was brought up in a Catholic tradition eats only fish on Good Friday. For me, I couldn't care less. I, I love fish but I also love eating meat. If I wanted to, in my Christian freedom, to make a statement and stand on my freedom, I could say to my mum, I'm not interested. I'm having a good T-bone steak and I'm going to get stuck into some nice beef sausages and you can eat your, your fish, that's fine. My mum would be offended, she'd be mortified at that. She'd think, what a heathen, like he calls himself a Christian, what's this guy doing? I'm free to eat a T-bone steak or I'm free not to eat a T-bone steak on Good Friday, who cares? Jesus should, Peter, remember, at Cornelius' house declared all food to be free, to be clean. You eat whatever you want, whenever you want, at whatever time you want. I could stand on my freedom, my Christian freedom, and show my mum it makes no difference. But she would be offended at that. What do I do? What's the principle here? That's only one example. There could be many, many examples in everyday life. But if I think the principle is that if in the exercise of our Christian freedom you're going to offend or upset a brother or sister in Christ, then you need to be careful how you exercise your freedom. The mark of a truly free person is that they have nothing at all to prove with regard to their freedom. Freedom is therefore a gift that is given by God to be carefully exercised for the good of his people. And as Christians, we need to be wise and discern the difference between compromise and being sensitive. That's a whole different topic. We need to be use our freedom. We need to be willing to not offend, but at the same time not to compromise the integrity of the gospel the integrity of our faith, and it's a, it sometimes is a fine line. But we need to grasp hold, just like our Lord Jesus, get a glimpse of his heart for humanity. We need to use our Christian freedom. We need to, to exercise each and every decision and every aspect of our lives for the greater good, for the glory of our Father in heaven, for the glory and majesty of our Saviour, our Lord Jesus, to see others not offended by the things that we do or we say, but so that they might see the glory of Christ in us, that they might come to embrace him as their saviour 
and to, for the first time in their lives, experience freedom that is true freedom. If you're a non-Christian this morning, let me encourage you that true freedom is only found in knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the truth. It is a freedom that brings relief from sin. It is a freedom and release from hell itself. It is a freedom that can only help us to serve Christ by serving others. Friends, this morning, whether you're Christian or not, may we exercise our freedom for the glory of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus. May we see him in a new light this morning. May we see his glory and his majesty. And may we give him the praise that is due only him. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we see from this very simple, very basic story, this great miracle, Lord, that you are claiming nothing short but the very divinity of God himself. Father, may we embrace you more. May we see your glory even more clearly, clearer this day. Father, you are the son of the Lord of the temple, but yet in your great majesty and in your power and dominion, you humbled yourself so that you would not cause offence to others, but you would want nothing more than to see people come to the salvation that comes only through your death on the cross. Help us, Lord, to be people that show the great sense, the same sensitivity, the same exercise of freedom that would see many others that do not know you yet come to embrace you, our Saviour, the great King of this universe. And we pray these things for your glory and honour. Amen.